Hi, welcome to another episode of Auto Service World Conversations. I'm Peter Bulmer, owner of Cars Magazine and Jobber News. This is a podcast dedicated to exploring issues facing today's Canadian aftermarket professionals, sponsored by SiriusXM Canada. SiriusXM is making it possible to offer your customers three months of free satellite radio. Go to SiriusXM.ca slash four shops for details. Hello, thanks for tuning in and welcome to another episode of Auto Service World Conversations. Today, I'm joined by Paul Dreisch, CEO of Preact. Paul, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, Peter. It's my absolute pleasure. For people who aren't familiar with Preact or yourself, uh, can you tell me a little bit about yourself, how you got into the industry, um, what Preact is all about? I've been in the automotive industry in my entire career. First 10 years, you know, large tier one, and then at Honda Motor. And then around 1999, I started getting into the auto tech space, if you will, and have done a, a number of auto tech startups and that, some of which, you know, one's owned by Volkswagen now, one's owned by Cisco and that. And my uh, co-founder, Kurt, I knew from the auto industry as well. And then our third co-founder, Keith, uh, founded and owns a, a defense contractor that specializes in active protection systems, uh, basically systems that you mount on a vehicle to detect an incoming missile and hopefully shoot it down before it blows the vehicle up. Oh, wow. Yeah. And Kurt came up with the idea, but Keith's company bootstrapped the the early days of Preact. And that's how we got to where we are now, three and a half years later. Very cool. So, so in a nutshell, what would you say Preact does? Preact is a near-field um, flash LiDAR company. So that's that's the product. What makes us unique is we leverage uh, what they call continuous wave time of flight imaging technology and a whole lot of software to make for a really, really inexpensive uh, LiDAR, like an order of magnitude less expensive than uh, other LiDARs. And one that operates at a really high frame rate. So that's that's kind of our, our secret sauce, if you will. We consider ourselves a software company and not a hardware company. Right, right. So you're someone interesting to talk to about, you know, the kind of rise of autonomous or autonomy when it comes to, you know, driving. So something I had thought of is a potentially fully autonomous vehicle society dead. It seems like companies are turning a lot of their attention, at least in the short term, and a lot of their investment over to areas like electrification. So would you say that autonomous driving is taking a backseat? Is it working its way in with the electric or what's your take on that? It's not dead. And I'll kind of back up a little bit. I I joined an autonomous vehicle related startup, I don't know, five and a half years ago. And I started that because I thought, you know, self-driving cars were two years away. It was really exciting. But once I got into it, I, I realized, like everybody else in that industry, that it's it's a way harder problem to solve than people thought. It's it's easy to make the car work 95% of the time. It's that remaining 5%, all those corner cases and edge cases and inclement weather and and stuff like that that's really really hard so yeah so kind of the the shine a few years went off of self-driving vehicles 
even though there's still plenty of uh, money and technology chasing it, where, where they, a lot of that money and effort did go to is enhancing ADAS functionality. You know, so going from level one to level two, and maybe even level three autonomy and less focused on, you know, level four and five, which, you know, as you know, means basically no, no driver in the car and the fully autonomous, like, you know, where most of the cars on the road are fully autonomous is, is decades and decades away. Um, Yeah. I, I remember, I mean, being in the publishing space, we interact with so many different companies and, you know, different thought leaders and tech experts and whatnot. And I remember, like you said, three, four years ago, I was under the impression that, yeah, we're like six months away from, you know, fleets being totally autonomous. Mm-hmm. But I think people were just jumping the gun. But a lot of those reservations, because I remember at the time, there was a lot of consumer concern that, you know, wasn't really being addressed because there were no really good answers. About that 5% of cases you mentioned, you know, how do you be 95% autonomous, but still not have a 100% solution for inclement weather, for someone popping out in front of a car, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think, yeah, we all got ourselves excited a little bit over, you know, something, something that is, as you <laughs> mentioned, probably decades away. Yeah. And then there's the whole regulatory arena, which is other than a few sample cars, it's not really legal to have self-driving cars on the road and and every state is different you know it's yeah. it's going to be a while <laughs> to say yeah. the least now actually that is an interesting segue into sort of the next thing i wanted to talk about which is it seems like autonomous could exist if you have blocked off areas restricted areas mm-hmm. or maybe something with limited human drivers it could right. exist in a taxi fleet or a public mm-hmm. transit sort of fleet capacity what would be the limit of that? Where do we go with that? Is that maybe a way to start and to scale up from there? Yeah, absolutely. And that that is that's I mean that's a, a hundred times easier to be in like a geofenced area. A common application is like an airport shuttle or a, a university shuttle, or you know maybe a a shuttle that does a, a fixed loop in a you know a downtown area, something like that. That's a much easier problem to solve because you, you're really limiting the other outside variables. Um, yeah, I guess like the 5G connectivity, you'd have to have, almost have everything connected to everything else. Yeah, and that, that'll continue to happen. And there'll also be the, the Waymos of the world who are operating small, small uh, fleets of, you know, kind of like autonomous uh, taxis and, and whatnot as they continue to get more and more experience and in the real world and in that but you know there's a reason those those fleets are in you know sunny phoenix and in california you know <laughs> it's a yeah, yeah the weather yeah. is uh much easier to deal with yeah 100 percent. i guess the, the obvious question that pops up to me at least is if you have these little small case use scenarios how, how do you scale that i mean is this one thing to have a controlled environment but i think the big big barrier is going to be the first next step being how do you get 25% of cars on the road period adapted to that? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's a couple uh, ways to answer that. One is 
as part of why Preact, we focused on near-field LIDAR because near-field sensing is already a $30 billion a year market for cars. You know, mainly it's ultrasonic sensors, radar, uh, maybe some short-range LIDAR and, and little RGB cameras. Uh, long-range LIDAR is a great technology looking for a market. There aren't many use cases that need a long-range LIDAR today. Right. So there, there will be an inflection point. You know, there always, there always is at some point down the road. It's hard for me to think when that will happen. I mean, people have to get far more comfortable, you know, just with simple ADAS kind of level two, level two plus type functionality, like park assist, self-parking, lane departure control, stuff like that. You know, there, there's so many false positives that it it's annoying for people, you know, yeah. I know whenever I get into a, a rental car or something, it's one of the first things I do is turn off you know, that lane departure warning and uh, any of the self uh, kind of the lane keep assist, like some, some vehicles have, because they never work very well, you know, and then the false positives, one, get annoying. And two, do you then trust this thing's always wrong in one direction? Is it maybe wrong in the other direction? Now, I know that's not really the case, but I'm in the industry and I know that. But if you're just a general driver. There's just not enough comfort. And then there's got to be enough cars with that kind of capability on the road. It's a bunch of things that are going to, one one day there'll be that inflection point and I, I really don't know when. It'll be a, a ways out though. Yeah. Actually, as you were just talking, I had a thought occur to me. It'd be interesting and it probably would have been a neat case example if this pandemic, if COVID kind of swept the world in 2030, that way the ADAS systems would be a little bit more advanced because mm-hmm. I mean, we saw such a huge, huge drop off, at least in North America of miles driven, right? So mm-hmm. you might have that case where you could penetrate because there's such a lower you know, volume being driven. So you could actually have like a mini test scenario when ADAS is you know, caught up a little bit more to like the three, four level. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it could be something like that for sure. I mean, it's it's causing a kind of an inflection point on business travel, you know, with this pandemic, people are realizing like, oh, I guess I don't really have to travel every week to all these meetings. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I mean, just take like our case right now, we're chatting on Zoom and, and yeah. that's kind of the new norm. And it's just interesting how we adopt and adapt so quickly. Mm-hmm. Now, Something else I wanted to bring up, we kind of touched on it a little bit, but the concept of ADAS, because of the false positives you're mentioning, because of the annoying factor, because of the imperfection that kind of exists in ADAS generally right now, Mm -hmm. it, it kind of concerns people. It's not really trusted the way technology like this should be by Mm -hmm. the the consumer at large. Mm -hmm. Can it really perform as well as we're hoping? I mean, is there a perfection point or is there something you know, reassuring you can tell me? Yeah, I, I have tremendous faith that ADAS will continue to improve and, and truly be adopted. Part of the reason there's so many false positives is because, you know, the car companies are very risk averse. And so they want zero false negatives, meaning, you know, you run into something. And, and to have so few false negatives, 
you tend to have more false positives, meaning you're really looking for any potential bad thing. You're overly cautious in a sense. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it's kind of like driving in, you know, if you've ridden in any of these self-driving vehicles, they drive really slow. They're kind of jerky. Uh, they're, they're overly cautious, cautious. So it's, it's kind of the same thing, but they're, they're getting better and better. And the, the sensing technology especially is, is really improving. Uh, and that's, that's a big part of it. Uh, getting them to have fewer false positives and still being right all the time. So yeah, actually it's funny. I am reminded of a workshop I was in like immediately pre-pandemic, end of 2019. Mm-hmm. And we had a guest come on from, I can't, I can't remember what uh, what software program it was, but, you know, it, it was ADAS and sort of advancing the line on self-driving autonomous. And they had like kind of an interesting anecdote where they had that in the other direction almost. So they had two connected cars and they had live passengers in and they were doing a lane pass. Mm-hmm. But the computers talking to each other were clearing by one inch because to them, they know that they're not going to hit. But when you mm-hmm. have a live person in the car, when you're zooming by <laughs> another car at one inch clearance, yeah. I mean, that's nothing. You kind of freak out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, they, so they realize kind of the opposite way. Like, oh, shit, we have to go back and scale this back a little bit. Yep, exactly. And with ADAS, you know, you're able to make incremental improvements in kind of all areas of ADAS, whether it be self-parking, park assist, automatic emergency braking, adaptive cruise control, things like that. And you'll get to that point where, especially like younger people who've you know, grown up never knowing a car that didn't have ADAS functionality. Whereas, you know, a lot of people my age or that, you know, still don't trust a backup camera and still have to turn their head over their shoulder to when they're backing up, you know, because they just don't feel comfortable with uh, using the camera. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, Paul, I'm, I'm in my thirties and I was kind of on the cusp. So I learned, you know, old school, but now I'm going to be honest with you. I can't parallel park without a reverse camera. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm totally useless. <laughs> How funny. And I'm, I'm still, I'm the old dog who can't seem to learn a new trick here because I'm, <laughs> I still look, I just don't feel right using the camera. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's what kind of ironic given your profession too. I know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> so I do have one last question for you, Paul. Let's speak to our audience a little more directly now. So in vehicle repair, Mm-hmm. ADAS calibration is a very expensive investment. I mean, there's mm-hmm. a lot that goes into it. Why should repair shops be investing? <laughs> well, if they want the sensors to work, <laughs> they pretty much have to. I know the the issue here. You know, I know the calibration uh, equipment is expensive and that, but, you know, after a significant crash, if you want those systems to work correctly, it has to be done. You know, it's not like it could just be done using, you know, over the air software to do it or things like that. It just has to be done if you expect these things to work correctly. Yeah. Necessary evil, you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, I, I get, you know, especially if you're a, a smaller repair shop, it's a big expense for that calibration equipment. 
you know, and I saw some report somewhere last year that something like 50% of the ultrasonic sensors that, you know, go in your bumper are not calibrated after a, a repair. I forget where I saw it, but it, it was shocking. And it's because a lot of these, you know, smaller repair shops don't have the equipment. And so they just kind of skip over it sometimes, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, I don't really well, know. Especially in Canada, I You're think right. that the adoption is just a little bit slower. So yeah. I think, I mean, we're, we're kind of, you know, in 2018, sort of where the U.S. was. We, so we still see quite a bit of that. Now, Paul, I know I said off air that I'm not going to trip you up with any questions, <laughs> but that was a little bit of a white lie. So final question, then, then I'm going to let you go. <laughs> We're all in the industry, cars, automotive. We're all gearheads. What is your all-time favorite car? A Probably a 2015 Ferrari 258. And I actually, I, I own my favorite car. I have a 2012 uh AMG Gullwing Black Edition, so that's that's kind of my favorite car. But I already ha- I have that one. I want that 2015 Ferrari. It's just a, a work of art to me. Oh, I couldn't agree more. A man with expensive taste too. I like it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not cheap. Well, that's going to take us for another episode of Auto Service World Conversations. Paul, thanks again for joining us. Yep, thanks for having me. All right, we'll catch you all next time. This has been another episode of Auto Service World Conversations with your host, Peter Bowler. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time. And thank you, as always, to SiriusXM Canada for being our title sponsor.